Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. Thank you for joining us today. We are really excited that you're here. Me especially because we are finally going to talk about a case that justifies all of my second guessing. (laughs) You mean you're giving the killer the benefit of the doubt? That's right. (laughs) There's a reason I like a confession and why it irks me so bad when a killer doesn't fess up and say they did it. Yeah, it always leaves that little underlying question in your mind, at least, of what if they're telling the truth? That's right. I hate doubt. And the case I'm going to tell you about today is really a case about choices, actions, and consequences. Ooh, I'm interested to hear what you're going to tell me. Just know that I'll be justified in all of my doubt. Oh, really? So somebody denies it and they really didn't do it? Exactly. Today, we're going to talk about a wrongful conviction. No way. Mm Mm-hmm. We don't come across those very often. And I wonder, how often do they actually happen? Do we just not ever find out? I think they happen more often than you think. If you look up the amount of money that each state has paid out for wrongful convictions, it would shock you. That's kind of terrifying because Mm. I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum from you. I'm usually like, nope, they did it. Send them to jail. (laughs) That's right. That's why I had to bring us a wrongful conviction case. But it does make the real murderer even more of a dirtbag because they let somebody else take the fall for them. Oh, that is terrible. It is. And they let an innocent person go to jail. That would just be your worst nightmare. Mm Mm-hmm. So let me tell you about this case. Let's do it. I'm curious if you will come to the same conclusions that the investigators did in the first investigation. Oh, boy. So on August 13th, 1986, Michael Morton arrived at work at the Safeway in Austin, Texas, where he was manager and punched in at 6.05 a.m. Just like every other day, the 32-year-old had shown up for work. As he and the produce manager Mario got ready for the day, they discussed their mutual interest in scuba diving and planned to go out the following day together. Mario did not notice anything unusual about Michael's behavior. From all appearances, Michael was having a very typical day. Everyone was oblivious to the shock and horror that would soon be revealed. Just like every other day on his way home from work, Michael stopped off at his son Eric's daycare to pick him up shortly after 2 p.m. But when he arrived at the sitters, she told him that Michael's wife, Christine, hadn't dropped three-year-old Eric off that morning. This was very unusual for his wife, Christine. Well, and to not have told him about it if she wasn't going to drop him off. Exactly. For Michael, this sent up red flags everywhere because she was a very organized person. Using the phone at the daycare, he immediately called home. Another man answered the phone at his house. What? Mm -hmm. It was Williamson County's legendary sheriff, Jim Boutwell, the notorious former Texas Ranger that always wore his Stetson hat, and he informed Michael to come home immediately. Oh. Breaking speed limits, Michael arrived at his house to find it blocked off with crime tape. As he pushed his way through, among detectives and crime lab technicians, someone pointed at him and said, that's the husband. Michael's first concern was Eric. He was worried that something had happened to him, and he was eventually told that his son was fine and was at a neighbor's house. While Detective Wood ran point on the investigation, Sheriff Boutwell sat Michael down for questioning at his own kitchen table. 
Michael said that's when he began to take in the flashes of light that were going off in his own master bedroom and was unceremoniously told that his wife of seven years was dead. Michael's response was to jump to the conclusion that she had been murdered. Why else would all the people be there taking photos? Yeah, it's a crime scene. Mm -hmm. But the sheriff took this as an interesting assumption from a man that had said he hadn't seen his wife since that morning, when she was alive and well. It's hard for me to believe that somebody wouldn't make that assumption. That seems like a normal reaction to me. There's crime scene tape everywhere and you're taking photographs in the bedroom. Right. But the sheriff took this to mean, oh, he already knows that she's murdered. Why would somebody jump to that conclusion? So this may be a case of the sheriff making the evidence fit his theory. It is exactly that. Oh. And worse. No. The sheriff told Michael earlier that day the couple's neighbor, Elizabeth Gee, had noticed three-year-old Eric wandering outside the house in the late morning. Oh. He was just by himself, wandering around in the front yard in just a shirt and a soggy diaper. Elizabeth gathered Eric up and tended to his needs and then let herself into her neighbor's house because it was very unusual for Eric to ever be left alone. Oh, yeah. Total red flags if you see a little toddler walking outside. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth had called out to Christine, but when she received no answer, she ventured further into the house and down into the master bedroom. The scene that greeted her is one that I am sure she had nightmares about for the rest of her life. The walls and the ceiling were splattered with blood and Christine's lifeless body was laying on the bed with a comforter pulled up over her completely, with a blue suitcase and a wicker basket stacked on top of her. Oh, that is odd. Mm Mm-hmm. Often it speaks to a lot of remorse. Yeah. Well, the covering up, but what's the suitcase and the wicker basket on top of there for? Just to further hide her body. Oh, that's interesting. To confirm her worst fears, Elizabeth said that she felt along the edge of the mattress until she felt two feet. Then she kept patting the edge until she found fingers, which led to a hand and then a wrist. When she could not find a pulse, she ran out of the house and called the police. That discovery had been made almost two and a half hours before Michael arrived home. By the time he arrived, police had already discovered what they thought was the man's motives to kill his wife. When police arrived at the home and began to investigate the crime scene, they found no signs of forced entry. Only fresh footprints located just inside the Morton's fenced-in backyard. While there were some signs that drawers and clothing had been strewn about in the couple's closet, Christine's engagement and wedding ring were lying in plain sight on the nightstand. Other valuables, like a camera with a telephoto lens, were also clearly visible and had been left untouched. The only items ever reported to be missing were Christine's purse, and a forty-five caliber gun that Michael had stored in the closet, with many other guns that hadn't been taken. Police were able to identify 15 fingerprints around the house, some on a sliding glass door that hadn't been locked, and one on the blue suitcase that sat piled on top of Christine. Shortly after arriving, police also found a note taped to the vanity in the bathroom. It read, Chris, I know you didn't mean to, but you made me feel really unwanted last night. After a good meal, we came home, you binged on the rest of the cookies, then with your nightgown around your waist, and while I was rubbing your hands and arms, you farted and fell asleep. What? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not mad or expecting a big production. I just want you to know how I feel without us getting into another fight about sex. Just think of how you might have felt if you were left hanging on your birthday. At the end, 
Michael had put ILY for I love you and had signed it with the letter M. Christine's body had been found in the couple's bedroom with her nightgown around her waist, exposing her genitals. While there was no evidence of recent sexual activity, there was evidence of semen on the bed. An autopsy would later reveal that she had been beaten with a blunt force object with eight different blows hitting her in the head. The second blow was believed to have completely incapacitated her. So they kept beating her after she was unconscious. After she didn't fight back anymore. The damage to Christine's poor face and head were so severe that initially at the scene, police had believed that she had been shot. No way. Mm -hmm. That is beyond rage. It's a lot of rage. Based on the partially digested contents of her stomach, her time of death was estimated to have been around 1 and 6 o'clock in the morning. 1 and 6 a.m.? Mm-hmm. And he started work at 6 a.m. Yep. Okay. The note, coupled with the brutality of the murder and all of the other evidence, had Sheriff Boutwell's instincts all trained on Christine's husband for being the murderer. But if you were the murderer, would you leave that note on the mirror? It just seems too easy. Well, the sheriff argued that he left it on the mirror as like, look, I knew she was still alive when I left. Oh, okay. With Mark seated in front of him at the kitchen table, Sheriff Boutwell immediately read him his Miranda rights and began to question Michael about what looked like a staged burglary scene with one missing gun, and he started to question Michael about his and Christine's past and their relationship. How terrible for him to just learn that your wife has been murdered and then be arrested in the next moment. How can your brain even catch up to what's happening? I'm trying to envision it from both sides. And how many times have we talked about a crime scene like that and said, oh, it's the husband? And And often it is. Yeah. And so I can see why they're already jumping to these conclusions. Right. I'm just surprised that he felt he had enough to already arrest him. Well, he didn't arrest him. He just read him his rights. But suspicion is clearly on Michael from the very beginning. And they start digging into his past. Michael was born on August 12th in 1954 in Texas. When he was young, his family moved to California for his father's work in the oil field, and they later returned to Texas to finish off Michael's last two years in high school, much to his dismay. He wasn't a fan of Texas over California. Well, and especially your last two years of high school, that's a rough time to have to start over. Mm -hmm. It was a much slower pace for him. Wanting to go a completely different direction than his father's profession, Michael started to attend Stephen F. Austin State University to pursue psychology. That's where he met Christine in 1976. After shooting down his friend, Michael shot his shot and the vibrant Christine agreed to go out with him. For Christine, it was almost love at first sight. For Michael, who was a little bit more reserved, it took a little bit longer to come around to the idea of the whole happily ever after. And that seemed to be just how their personalities were hardwired. While Christine was the life of the party, super outgoing and friendly with everybody type, Michael was slower to warm up. It's not that he was shy, he just wasn't that outgoing of a person. A little more introverted. Mm -hmm. But he was a guy of strong opinions, just like Christine was a woman of strong opinions. And neither were afraid to share them. Jay Gans, a former roommate of Michael, said, quote, There was nothing subtle about either one of them. They would argue very intensely, and eventually one of them would start cracking up. And not long after that, they would disappear into the bedroom. (laughs) Sounds like they had a very passionate relationship. Oh, yeah, I could see that. In 1977, Michael moved to Austin with plans to attend the University of Texas, and Christine followed him. 
and their passionate natures continued. They were married on April 7, 1979, and started to build a life for themselves, although it wasn't quite the one of their original dreams. Both Michael and Christine decided not to continue in their chosen career paths when they learned that many of their credits wouldn't transfer over. Oh, that would totally suck. It would. And it was kind of a reframing for them. Yeah, all that time and money that you put into your college courses, that would be very unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Instead, Michael began to work at a grocery store. At first, he worked as a shelf stock boy at night, but eventually did work his way up to the manager over toiletries and houseware. Christine got a job as a manager, too, at Allstate, making much more than Michael. Michael would eventually have to work at side jobs cleaning parking lots to help supplement their income. In 1981, the couple experienced their first big heartbreak, with a second trimester miscarriage of their first pregnancy. Christine was devastated and later said that it had been Michael who pulled her through it. Then, two years later, in 1983, when their son Eric was born... They were devastated to learn that after experiencing a healthy pregnancy, that their newborn needed not one, but two life-saving surgeries. The first one, done right after his birth, was to fix a defect in his esophagus. The second surgery, and much more serious one, was one that he needed to fix a congenital heart defect, and it couldn't be performed until Eric was older and bigger. Oh, that's so sad. Mm-hmm. Their whole fairy tale was just kind of unraveling. Yeah. Christine and Michael were sent home with their bluish infant and told to try and keep him alive until his third birthday or until he was 30 pounds. What? Mm -hmm. That's when he would be big enough to receive his life-saving surgery. Like, here, take him home. Just try to keep him alive if you can. Yep. That would be so heartbreaking and be so stressful. They lived in constant fear of him getting sick. The little boy was always sickly and could never exert himself. While other toddlers ran around with endless energy, he would look at books and lay on the floor to watch them, too exhausted after only a short distance of exertion. Christine and Michael's whole existence revolved around keeping Eric healthy, with strict medication regimes and endless doctor's appointments. They battled each day to get their son one day closer to his third birthday. This was incredibly stressful for the couple's relationship. Well, no wonder you said it was very odd for anyone to see Eric unattended. That's right. He was watched like a hawk. And so that's why I think police were very suspicious because when Michael showed up at the house, he was only concerned about Eric and he never asked at all about his wife. Right. The couple's relationship had always been a little unusual to their friends. They were always known to argue to the point of making their friends uncomfortable. Haven't we all done that before? <laughs> <laughs> but this seemed to be like on a regular basis. And uh, it was just because of their personalities. Right. So as an example, Christine's best friend Holly said that Michael used to like to rib Christine and his sense of humor could be sarcastic and sometimes crude. A running gag between them involved Michael calling out a derogatory name for Christine followed by get me a beer. Uh, it was something that they had once overheard a friend of a friend shouting at his girlfriend and they had made a joke about it. Christine would respond by telling Michael to go screw himself. To the couple, this was a huge joke. But Michael was always known to take these jokes just a little bit too far. Holly said that he, quote, teased her a lot, and he would go right up to the line of what was acceptable. And sometimes he went over it. Aww. When an attractive friend of theirs stopped by the house one day wearing shorts, he told Christine, quote, now that's the way you should look. What? Okay, yeah, that's a lousy thing to say. Yeah, it's a jerk. Yeah. For sure. Not okay. 
No, not at all. But that was just how their relationship was. And he wonders why she doesn't want to have sex with him. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Why she's like, no, fart on you. Good night. (laughs) Some people just don't think. So true. Now, though, with the added stress of Eric's health, Michael's teasing gave way to more pointed and hurtful comments. That the couple were having a difficult time was no secret to anybody. Michael often complained to his friends about not getting enough sex and about Christine's weight that she had put on ever since having Eric. Yeah, that's a real dirtbag move, honestly. He's not sounding like a very nice guy at all. Anytime any man complains that his wife has gained weight, giving birth to their child when they don't understand what your body goes through, can kiss my butt, (laughs) you know, like, not cool. It's not nice at all. When the couple moved to their new house on Hazelhurst, they had large arguments in front of their new neighbors about the smallest of things, like the size of the deck that Michael was building or Christine's decision to plant marigolds at the end of the driveway just beyond the sprinkler's reach. So they're getting to the point where every little thing is irking them about each other. Right. And they're having these great big blow-ups in front of all of their neighbors. So imagine behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. Neighbors quickly took sides. Christine sighed. She was the only one that made any effort to make friends, learn neighbors' names, and to be social at any chance she got. Just like who she had always been. It's just who she was. She was sweet and she was feisty. Michael too, though, unfortunately continued to be just like he had always been. A little prickly around the edges. Our neighbors was saying, oh, I don't like how fat my wife is since she's given birth. I'd be like, Well, are you going to stay home and cook dinner so she can go to the gym? Are you going to clean up so she can have the time to take care of herself? Sorry, I'm still not over that part. (laughs) Christy's not. Christy's already to call him to dirtbag. You're right there with Sheriff Beltwell. (laughs) I'm not saying he's guilty, but I am saying he's a dirtbag. Yeah. His behavior is not becoming of him at all. No. Their neighbor Elizabeth made no secret of the fact that she considered him downright rude because he would spend hours doing landscaping in his yard and not once wave or nod at any of his neighbors. Well, I don't know how rude that is, but some people just like to keep to themselves. But it was such a contrast between Christine and Michael. Right. In June 1986, just before his third birthday, Eric was finally big enough to have his open heart surgery. Both Michael and Christine took time off work to be with him the whole time, and they were amazed at how quickly their son changed right before their eyes, right after the surgery. By the time they brought him home from the hospital, he had a glowing pink color and was running around just like the rest of the toddlers laughing. Six weeks after Eric's surgery, the three had gone out together to celebrate Michael's 32nd birthday. They went out to the City Grill, a trendy restaurant in downtown Austin, for a rare night out delighted to watch their healthy boy mow down on his favorite food and ice cream. When they got home, Michael put Eric, who had fallen asleep on the ride home, into his bed, and then once he and Christine were alone, he put in an adult video that he had rented for the occasion, hoping to spark some romance. (laughs) It is his birthday after all. That's right. He's hoping to get lucky. And it's been a while. Yeah. And their boy is feeling better now. The stress of Eric being sick has lifted. He's hoping to get some. Well, it feels like the stars would be aligned. They just had a great night. Mm -hmm. Not long into the movie, though, Eric woke up and Christine went to settle him. When she returned, Michael had tried to pick up where they left off, but she wasn't interested anymore and fell asleep on the living room floor. 
I'm assuming you're still running after now an energetic three-year-old. She was still probably tired. And you never do owe it to your spouse, right? That has to be a consensual thing every single time. Absolutely. But hurt and angry, Michael retreated to the bedroom without her. Later, when she came to bed, she leaned over and kissed him and promised tomorrow night. Her promise of tomorrow hadn't soothed Michael's hurt feelings. So when he woke the next morning at 5.30 to go to work, he wrote a letter and put it on the vanity mirror where she would be sure to find it. But it had been the police that found the letter instead of Christine. As police gathered more and more information from the couple's friends and family, Sheriff Boutwell became more and more convinced that they had found their guy. From then on, they only sought out information that would confirm their suspicions and made it clear to everyone that the police believed Michael had killed his wife. Wow. You can see how they would think that, though. Here's this really big jerk of a guy that's always at his wife for more sex. He's super insensitive. He doesn't get along with anybody. And she refused him one last time. Right. By Christine's funeral, tensions were running high in what was once a cordial relationship with his in-laws and Christine's friends. Oh, that would be so tough if the police are telling you that, yeah, your daughter's husband killed her. Mm -hmm. Sheriff Boutwell was confident enough to make statements to the media about there being no need for public alarm because he seriously doubted that we have a serial murder running loose in the area, convincing everyone that they knew exactly who was responsible and that no one else needed to worry about anything. With suspicions high, Michael's behavior was scrutinized with a very specific lens. And it's kind of shocking that he's telling the media, yeah, we know that this is our guy, but they haven't even arrested him yet. Right. So you're just slandering this guy's name. If you know it's him, then why haven't you arrested him? Mm -hmm. So now everybody's going to be looking at him like he's a murderer. Oh, yeah. And did they do a proper crime scene investigation? Did they check the semen sample? We're going to get into that. Okay. Michael remained stoic throughout all the questioning with police, willing to cooperate with any of their requests, but showing very little emotion. And had they left Eric in his care at this time? Mm -hmm. For the following six weeks until he gets arrested, Eric does remain in his care. But while he's still even sitting at the kitchen table, he's not showing any emotion. He's just found out his wife is dead and they're not seeing any emotion from him. The only time that he did start to show emotion was he started to cry when he saw Eric. And the sheriff took this as an overwhelming sign of guilt. He felt like, oh, you just saw your son and that's when you're feeling guilty. Like, oh, I just killed your mother. Right. On the night of the murder, when police turned the house back over to him, Michael chose to stay in the house. Oh, you said it was a super bloody crime scene. The bedroom was, yep. Michael would later say he wanted to keep Eric's routine as much the same as possible. He later said he couldn't sleep the whole night and he just wandered from room to room. But after the bedroom was repaired and repainted, he did start to sleep in it again. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that because I've obviously never had that happen. Well, it reminds me of that Ireland case that we did. He kept everything the same and would walk people through, reporters through the crime scene. Right. I have thought of that case actually while you've been telling this one. There's a lot of similarities between the two of them. But his behavior was a little bit odd. But then when he explained why he did these things, it kind of made sense. Later, he says that he stayed in the bedroom that she was murdered in because he could still feel her presence there. Okay. 
Later, Michael took a weed eater to Christine's marigolds at the end of the driveway. No way. Mm-hmm. The ones that they had argued about. <gasps> so the same nosy neighbor that has watched all of their fights and him yelling at her and degrading her now watches him weed eat over her prized flowers. That he didn't want there in the first place. That's right. Okay, that is odd. Because normally you would think he would have the opposite reaction and treasure her marigolds. Right. But with all of the funeral going on and lack of care, because they were out of reach of the sprinkler head, they had withered and died. And this seemingly insensitive act to rip out his dead wife's flowers, he explains away by saying, I had to get the house ready to resale. Okay. But you can see how his actions would be viewed as so suspicious. Well, it would just seem like he's very... Insensitive. Yeah. And I think he is insensitive. (laughs) Oh, I think so too. But I think he had to have been going through the worst time in his life, honestly. His wife just been murdered. People think it's him. And I can actually even see why. Like when he saw his son, he would have started to cry. Because when you're in a state of stress and you see somebody that you love... That's when you know that you can break down, even if it is a child. Right. And grief is just a crazy thing. And you never know how you're going to react. So true. So it's hard because we think we would react a certain way. And so it's easy to cast judgment. Right. On the way that we think is the proper way to grieve. As suspicion about Michael's guilt rose, he was advised by a friend to lawyer up. Michael retained two well-regarded Austin lawyers, Bill Allison and Bill White who advised him to stop talking with law enforcement. Up until this time, he had been really open with them and just answering all of their questions, trying to do whatever they asked him to do. Yeah, because you think if you have nothing to hide, why hide anything? Right. But all of a sudden, he was not talking to them at all. And to law enforcement, this just made him look even more guilty. Uh, But the Billies were right. (laughs) He needed to protect himself. It's true. But how do you protect yourself? And still look innocent, like you have nothing to hide. It's such a double-edged sword. really is. While making supper on the evening of September 25th, 1986, Sheriff Boutwell came to the door with a warrant for Michael's arrest and ripped his terrified son from his arms. During the trial, which started on February 10th, 1987, the prosecutor, Jim Anderson, outlined all of Sheriff Boutwell's evidence, including a revised time of death between 9.30 p.m. and 1.30 a.m., a time when only Michael had been with Christine. The time was revised by the coroner after Anderson had expressed some doubt over the strength of evidence in the case. The coroner justified the change in time by saying that Christine and Michael's meal had been earlier than originally thought on the night of her death. It would be pointed out later that, quote, no proper investigations were made at the scene of death of the stiffening of the body, the settling of the blood, or the body's change in temperature, which were all very traditional measures to assist forensic pathologists in determining the time of death. During this first trial, they went solely by the contents of her stomach. Wow. So they didn't do their due diligence in collecting that information. Not at all. During the trial, Anderson also played a section of the porn video A Handful of Diamonds that Michael had rented for the jury. No way. Mm -hmm. Just to cast him as a sex-crave perv that killed his wife because she didn't have sex with him on his birthday. (laughs) Why do you have to play that? Just tell them. (laughs) Those poor jury members. There were jury members that were so disturbed that they could not look at him the same way after that. He's definitely trying to tarnish his image. 
Anderson went on to use the testimony from an expert that semen had been found on the bed to paint the picture of Michael using Christine's dead hand to masturbate after he had killed her to shock and disturb the jury even more. What? They didn't have any evidence of that, but you know how they get dramatic and they tell a story? Right. That's the story that he created for this jury. Oh, he's just making him sound like this total monster. Mm -hmm. On February 17th, 1987, to his utter shock, Michael Morton was convicted of murder by the five-man, seven-woman jury and given a life sentence. When the verdict was read, he collapsed into his lawyer. All he could do was say, I didn't do this. The jury had deliberated less than 90 minutes. That included eating lunch. What? Mm -hmm. So they barely talked about it. They were just like, hey, what do you think? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, we're done. Let's eat. Right. That is how concrete of a picture the prosecution painted of Michael. Wow. That's actually so scary that Mm -hmm. that can happen. Michael hadn't even made arrangements for Eric because he was so sure that he would be found innocent. Well, yeah, when you're innocent, you don't think that there's any chance that you're going to go to prison for something you didn't do. We just have this blind trust in our justice system. It's so true. That's why I find so much solace in a confession, because then they're saying, yes, I did it. There's no second guessing. Right. While in prison, custody of Eric was awarded to Christine's younger unmarried sister, Mary Lee Kirkpatrick, over Michael's parents. But at the recommendation of a child psychiatrist who felt that Eric should know his father, the presiding judge agreed to allow two supervised visits a year. A year? Mm -hmm. That's nothing. Mary Lee drove Eric to Huntsville every six months to see his father. And he was four when these visits began. He's not even going to know his dad at all. Exactly. Gradually, the visits grew more and more uncomfortable for Eric because as time passed, Michael became more and more of a stranger to him. Around 13, Eric started asking questions about his mother's murder. And at age 15, he told his father he no longer wanted to visit him. And Michael respected his decision. He told him, quote, I'm not going to force you to come see me. You come back anytime if you change your mind. And then he told Mary Lee, take good care of my son for me. Oh, that is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Because not only now has Michael's life been ruined, but so has Eric's. He had to grow up not only with having his mom murdered, but believing that his father was the one that did it. Well, really, he lost both parents, right? Yeah. When Michael received Eric's graduation announcement, he learned that his son had changed his last name to Olson, Mary Lee's husband's name. Ouch. That would be a tough blow. It was a huge blow. Throughout all of his lost appeals and lost relationships, Michael maintained his innocence. His lawyer and his family believed so much in his innocence that they appealed to the Innocent Project to look into his case. In 1990, when he succeeded in getting the semen DNA tested, a preliminary test showed it was Michael's, and the court used this as confirmation of his guilt and denied his application to challenge his conviction any further. Yeah, but how unusual would that be to have semen in your bed? Exactly, Christy. And we'll come back to that semen stain. The one that he supposedly created with his wife's dead hand. Oh, that is so disturbing. In October 2008, after agreeing to take the case, lawyers from the Innocence Project found some really questionable behavior of the investigating officers and the prosecution team in the case reports. The existence of these suspicious contents of these reports were brought up just three days before Michael's trial in 1987, but weren't turned over until 2008. 
So his original lawyers had said, there's something going on here. We need to see all of the evidence. And they never turned anything over. For like a decade. Mm -hmm. The lead detective, Detective Wood, had never taken the witness stand during the trial. This is very unusual and very suspicious. And it was purposely done by the prosecution so that Detective Wood's notes couldn't be entered into evidence. (gasps) Oh, that's so dirty. Mm -hmm. Michael's original defense team had suspected that this was the case and asked the judge to examine the evidence for completeness. Which the judge did, or at least he examined all the paperwork that was given to him. Barely six pages of notes for a nine-month investigation. This was just the first of many miscarriages of justice that would be uncovered in Michael's 1987 conviction. Michael and his attorneys throughout his incarceration were gradually allowed to test and retest evidence over a period of time from 1990 to 2008 for DNA. It's shocking that the trial was even able to continue without the defense team having all of that evidence. That should never have taken over 10 years. The judge just took the prosecution's word that he was turning over all of the evidence. Oh. The bedsheets were retested and it was found that the first reports had erred. The sample from the bedsheets wasn't a pure semen sample, one that would have been created by masturbating. Instead, the sample was found to have been a combined sample indicating that the couple had had consensual sex probably days before the murder. Ah. Just like you said, it's a married couple's bed. There's going to be evidence of sex in it. One by one, pieces of evidence were retested and placed further doubt on Michael's guilt. The final piece of evidence that was tested was a blue bandana that was found by Christine's brother in the construction site behind the Morton's house. This testing was fought by the prosecution and had been denied several times by judges that had connections to the original prosecution lawyer. He just found a blue bandana behind the house? Yep. The day after the murder, Christine's brother, John Kirkpatrick, was playing detective at the house. And I think maybe he already felt like the police weren't doing a good enough job. He had to have been. He surmised that the killer had entered through the sliding door and then took a guess that he would have exited through the backyard over the fence into the construction site behind the house. That's what made sense to him. So he's literally standing at their backsliding door being, if I was a killer, what would I do? He said he tried to get into the mind of a killer. So he and his wife walked the path, and that is when they found the discarded blue bandana that looked like it had blood on it. Oh my goodness. John carefully collected it, touching it as little as possible, and put it in a Ziploc bag and immediately turned it over to the sheriff's office. But its discovery did not spur law enforcement to comb the area behind the Morton's home for any additional evidence. Did they test the blood on it? They do eventually, but not right away. Oh. It had simply been logged into evidence and never re-examined again after confirming that there was blood on it. This is such bad police work. Mm -hmm. You get a bloody bandana from behind the house and you're like, yeah, just file that baby away. We don't need to test it. Yeah, they knew it was bloody, but at the time, DNA testing wasn't available. But blood type is. Mm -hmm. So when tested in 2008, it was confirmed that it did have Christine's blood on it, along with the DNA profile of someone other than Michael. When ran through CODIS, there was a hit to a known felon, Mark Allen Norwood. I can't believe that this has taken this long. And he has been sitting in jail and basically lost out on his own life. For almost 24 years. Wow. Was the original prosecutor and sheriff 
still on the force when all this happened. We're going to come back to where they're at in their careers in a little bit. Because I'm curious how you would feel being that sheriff who basically strong-armed everybody into convicting this man. Well, they thought it was all a schmoz. They firmly believe that Michael did it, even when the evidence comes out that he didn't. They still do. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's nasty. Yep. We'll come back to Michael's conviction and the other stuff that went on to cause this false conviction and let the real dirtbag get away with another murder. Oh, man. Mark Allen Norwood was born on March 29th, 1954. He was the oldest of three children born to Dorothy May and Mark's Thomas Norwood. His father was an intelligence officer for the U.S. Air Force, and the young family moved around a lot while Tommy was stationed both stateside and internationally. After spending time in France, California, and Guam, the family eventually settled in Austin, Texas in 1970 for Tommy to work at the Bergstrom Air Force. In Austin, Dorothy took a secretary job and the family appeared to be close-knit and religious. There was no signs of any abuse or anything like that in Mark's history. With the move back to the States, Mark had difficulty adjusting. And in the 11th grade, he dropped out of Crockett High School and joined the Air Force, following in his father's footsteps. While stationed in New York, he met Joe Wynn, and the two had a little girl together. In 1974, he was honorably discharged due to a knee injury, which I believed he sustained while he was in the service. And this seems to be when it took a dramatic turn for Mark, when he was discharged because he could no longer perform in the Army. In 1980, now living in Nashville with Joe and his daughter, he was caught stealing an engine out of a Chevrolet Chevelle with a friend. At the time of the arrest, he was also charged with receiving stolen property and driving around a stolen van. When facing the judge for the offense, he pleaded for leniency from the court for what appears to be his first offense, saying that the realization that his actions could have landed him in jail had been a real eye-opener for him and Joe. The court sentenced the veteran that had fallen on difficult times to five years of probation for his guilty plea. Apparently for Joe, though, this jail scare had been a real eye-opener because the two were divorced in 1981, and Mark got ownership of their 1974 Chevy van in the proceedings. After his divorce, Mark became involved with a 15-year-old named Judy. Aww. Mark was around 27 when they met. Her parents weren't overly excited about the couple's relationship. Yeah, no, he's already married, divorced, and has a kid, mm -hmm. and she's 15. Yep. And I doubt that it was all about the age gap. He was not a good influence and had been involved in several small-time criminal ventures. On top of all that, he could be a violent guy that would just lose it. Oh, man. He had a lot of frustration with the world and he would just take it out wherever he could. Oh, can you imagine that being your 15-year-old daughter? You would just want to pick her up and leave the country. Mm -hmm. Hide her away from them? Yeah. Over the next two years, Mark continued his downward spiral into crime. Arrest records show that he was charged in 1983 in Nashville for malicious mischief, assault with the intent to commit murder, aggravated assault with a weapon, and contributing to the delinquency of a minor, whom I assume that's Judy. Likely. Mark's charges and criminal life didn't dissuade Judy from what she believed was love. At the age of 16, the two were married in 1983 after Mark had persuaded her to emancipate from her parents. Oh. Judy was now carrying Mark's second child. In January 1984, Mark took his new bride and his four-month-old son back to Austin, Texas, and began to work as a carpet installer and as a construction laborer. One of the apartments that they had moved into was 1405 Justice Lane, 
just a short distance from the Mortons' home at 9114 Hazelhurst Drive. The Mortons lived in a half-built subdivision that was surrounded by ongoing construction. A hundred yards from their back door was the job site that Mark was familiar with. In 1987, while the authorities were busy wrongfully convicting Michael Morton of Christine's death, Mark continued his life of crime, undeterred from the murder that he had just committed. Oh, he must have been just laughing with the sheriff going on TV saying, we got our guy. That would have just put fuel in his fire. Mm -hmm. It would have made him feel invincible. Totally. Dorothy, Mark's mom, said that when the 1980s recession hit, the little family struggled financially and frequently had to have yard sales to sell their belongings for extra cash. She was oblivious to the fact that these belongings were all stolen goods that Mark was taking from people in and around his neighborhood. (laughs) Yeah, I believe that. In 1987, he was charged with felony theft after neighbors reported that the items that had been previously stolen from their houses were showing up in yard sales at Mark's home. (laughs) He's not even smart enough to, like, move the garage sale. No. Have your own neighbors come and buy their things back. Exactly. Some of the clothing items he stole still had the original owner's initials in them (laughs) when he tried to resell them. And furniture (laughs) items were easily picked out by their owners just blocks away from where they had been stolen from. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, like, oh, I put that ding in the chest of drawers when this happened. Right? You know your things. (sighs) So not the most intelligent dirtbag. No, not at all. When police searched Mark's home, they found items from four separate burglaries that had been reported in the area. While awaiting his court case, Mark was released on bond, convincing his mother that he hadn't known the things were stolen that he had bought from a friend. (laughs) And did she believe her little boy? She did. She posted the bond for him. Mark would later plead guilty to the charges in April 1988 and a month later be sentenced to four years in prison, but that sentence would come too late for another victim. Ugh. It is perhaps one of the saddest facts of Michael's wrongful conviction, that Mark could have been in jail for Christine's murder, and instead he was given the freedom to murder again. That is so frustrating. hmm While on bond, on the night of Wednesday, January 13th, 1988, Mark entered the home of the beautiful brunette Deborah Masters Baker, just a couple of blocks from his own. She was a loving mother of two and a vivacious woman in her 30s who wasn't shy to share her opinion just like Christine had been. Deborah had once been a student of journalism and had published several articles. Deborah was recently separated from her husband Philip and had recently moved into the area. On that night, she was alone. Philip had stopped by earlier that evening to pick up her two children, a seven and a three-year-old, for a visit. Deborah used her alone time to go out to a party with her mom and her sister and had returned home, talked with her mom and her sister for a bit, and then by midnight they had both left and Deborah was alone in her home to settle for the night. Just like at Christine's house, Mark entered the home through the sliding glass door. There was some debate about whether it was locked at the time. Deborah was known to frequently forget to lock that door, but the design of the door also made it particularly easy to open from the outside even when it was locked simply by lifting the door out of its tracks. Oh, Do you man. remember those big, heavy sliding doors? Yes. Yeah, where you actually had to put the piece of wood in there to lock it. Yep. That was the one. Mark did not know Deborah, but he was a known burglar in the area, and if caught while stealing, he would have had his bond revoked. During both of the murders, both women at the time looked very similar to Judy, who Mark was having marital problems with. 
If either had caught him in the act of stealing, they were both feisty enough to speak out, and he had a violent temper and would not have thought twice before beating them. The next morning, Deborah's mother received a call from Deborah's co-workers that she had not shown up for work. This was very unusual for her, and her mom drove over to Deborah's house to check on her. Oh no. When Gertrude arrived, she found something that no mother should ever see. Under a mass of pillows and blankets, she found Deborah's naked body face down in her bed with a pillow placed underneath her abdomen so that her buttocks were raised in the air. Oh. Blood was everywhere. Gertrude called the police right away. So again, Deborah is found with a whole bunch of things piled on top of her. Yeah, the same M.O. Mm-hmm. An autopsy would reveal that Deborah had died from blunt force trauma after receiving six blows to the head. Just like Christine, she also had small defensive wounds, and there had been no signs of sexual assault. Oh my goodness. I do find it interesting that they both were posed like they had been raped, but right. weren't. He's a known burglar, so he's probably trying to throw them off of his scent, so to speak, to say, well, this is a sexual sadist. This is somebody who came in here to rape them. Maybe. Or it was to further humiliate them by exposing them. If he does have this deep-seated anger towards his current wife and they remind him of her, then I could see that being as an extra way to make them feel humiliated. You might be onto something there, Christy, because later on it's revealed that Judy was stepping out on him. Ah. And if she was stepping out, that's a sexual thing. And it's, okay, you want to step out? Here, let everybody see. Yeah, it's a possibility. The police investigation at Deborah's house did collect Caucasian pubic hair on the bed and on a blue bathroom towel into an evidence vacuum. Okay. They were able to confirm that money from Deborah's purse and a VCR were stolen from the home. A detective at the scene observed leaves that were disturbed in the backyard near the fence, which led them to believe that the killer had entered the property through the back by jumping the fence and then had exited the same way in the direction of Mark's residence. A neighbor came forward to say that earlier in the evening, she had noticed a light-skinned guy who was about six feet tall walking as if he were coming from the direction of Deborah's house. Her dog at the time had started to bark a particularly vicious defensive growl, and so she had gotten up to investigate. This was probably when Mark was canvassing the property to see if anyone was going to be home. The neighbor said shortly after midnight that her dog had started to bark that same way again. And I'm guessing that this is when Mark returned. Police originally tried to blame Deborah's estranged spouse, Philip, for the murder. But when his alibi checked out, the investigation would grow cold for the next 23 years. Wow. But if they had Boutwell on the case, then her ex-husband would have been in jail already. It's true. While Deborah and Michael's families and others prayed for justice, Mark continued his life of crime. For the burglary charges, Mark was sentenced to four years in prison, but was released early in January of 1989, less than a year later. In 1996, Judy left Mark, apparently running off with his good friend, Louis Sunny Wan. Oh. So she was stepping out on him. And to be with the friend is so not cool. Mm hmm. After spending a brief time in Nashville to be closer to his son, Mark moved to Riverside, California in 2001, where he would continue to work random construction jobs. The change in location, of course, did little to change Mark's criminal behavior, and in 2007, he faced charges for drug possession and resisting arrest. For that offense, Mark pleaded guilty in order to avoid jail time, and he was given three years probation. During this time, his DNA was collected, 
and entered it into the CODIS database, where it would later be matched to the blue bandana that had Christine's blood on it. Wow. While on parole, Mark moved back in with his mom into Bastrop in 2009 and got a job as a dishwasher at Maxine's, a restaurant on Main Street, Bastrop. In 2010, Mark was charged with yet another assault causing bodily injury, but again escaped punishment when the victim didn't show up to court. It's always so frustrating when they fall through the cracks like this. Mm -hmm. So Mark just got to go back to mommy's house. That's where he was living when his DNA was connected to Christine's cold case. Of course he was. This delinquent living with his mommy. Mm -hmm. With the DNA match, members of Michael's new legal team prepared a case to have Michael released from prison. While doing their research for his case, the team had dug through cold cases in Austin and found Deborah's unsolved murder. The details were eerily similar. Both were pretty brunettes in their 30s. Both were killed on Wednesdays on the 13th day of the month. What? Both had three-year-olds. Both had been attacked in their bedroom on waterbeds. And both were violently bludgeoned to death and then covered with numerous objects. Wow. And both had their genitals exposed. Mm-hmm. But no signs of sexual activity. Right. Those are wild similarities. Is that just a coincidence that they were on Wednesdays and the 13th of the month on waterbeds? Like, how do you get that many similarities? I dug so deeply to figure out what significance there was to Wednesdays and the 13th day of the month. And I couldn't find anything, but it does seem so suspicious. I wonder if he found out that Judy was cheating on Wednesday, the 13th. Maybe. I don't know. But I do think that it is so telling that both of these women matched her profile. Right. That is wild. Because, I mean, it could be a coincidence, some of those things. But for all of that to line up together is pretty remarkable. It is. And if the date had been significant for Mark in some way, then it would explain why he was so easily triggered. That maybe he wasn't going in to murder these women but he was already feeling emotionally charged on that date because something significant had happened. True. It is all very interesting. And even just the opportunity of these women were home alone at the time. Mm -hmm. Because to me, that feels like you had to stake that out. How would you know? It appears like he was staking them out to steal from them. Right. But he had to have known then if he was staking them out that the women were in there. If you're going to stake it out to rob, you wait till it's unoccupied. Why didn't he rob them when they were out for their birthday dinner? Right. And nobody was in the house. And even with Deborah, she had just been out at a party with her mom and her sister and the house was empty. And he had been there earlier in the evening to know that she wasn't home then. Yeah. So I don't know if he can just say, oh, I was robbing the house and I was startled by them and one thing led to another. I don't buy that. It is very curious. Michael's investigative team reached out to the Austin Police Department and told them that they may want to test the DNA from the hair follicle that had been collected so many years ago against Mark Norwood's DNA. When Austin Police approached Mark for the DNA sample at his mother's house, they showed him a picture of Deborah, and Mark denied having ever seen her before. The DNA match was approximately 1 in 377.2 billion. Oh, my. Owing to a unique genetic mutation. Bullseye. Mm Mm-hmm. Investigators doing their due diligence investigated new leads now that they had an idea where to look for evidence. They were able to track down the forty-five caliber gun that had went missing along with Christine's purse. 
they found that it had been sold by Mark to Sonny, Mark's ex-friend that had run off with his wife shortly after Christine's murder. No way. Mm -hmm. That came full circle. It did. Mark was arrested in November 2011 for Christine's murder, and a year later, in November 2012, was indicted for Deborah's. Mark's family refused to believe that he had been connected with the murders. They believed that he was targeted for the way that he looked. Mark's brother Dale, who had always affectionately called Mark Woodstock because of his long gray hair and shaggy beard, said his looks always made people think he was a troublemaker. His mother said he was often mistaken for a drifter, but that he was just a family man who liked to work and fix things. And steal things. Mm -hmm. And murder. Exactly. It seems that Mark's whole family were blind when it came to his past arrest record. They explained away any evidence that connected him to the crime, saying things like, Someone else must have picked up the bandana that Mark had discarded and used it to wipe up Christine's blood. Yeah, that's not likely that someone's going to take the bandana, go into the house, put a few drops of blood on it, and then take it back out of the home. A lot of their theories didn't add up. In March of 2013, a second trial was held for Christine's murder, almost 26 years after the first. The trial lasted eight days, and the jury heard evidence from the original trial and from Michael Morton. Although the jury didn't officially know that he had been exonerated for the same murder that Mark was now on trial for. The judge allowed evidence from Deborah's impending trial to be entered to allow the prosecution to establish a pattern for killing for Mark. It was like a trial inside a trial as they presented the jury with evidence to believe that Mark had committed both crimes. Wow. It's very unusual. Yeah. It was argued that the connection and the value of the evidence overruled the prejudice that it would produce against Mark. That is surprising. They had to prove to the jury, hey, he did this crime and look, it's so similar to this crime that he did this crime. But I do think that those past records and things like that need to be brought in because it does establish a pattern. It does. And for this one, because the murders were so similar, it was a very distinct pattern. Oh, yeah. The defense argued that the only connection was a bloody bandana that hadn't been found by police officers, so who knew what it was contaminated with? The argument was made that it had Mark's DNA and Christine's blood on it by mere coincidence, and the defense presented multiple poorly constructed theories to prove how this could be just mere coincidence. Yeah, that's not a coincidence. A dead woman's blood does just not happen to coincidentally get on your bandana. One of their theories was that her brother had touched some of Christine's blood in the house. And then when he picked up the bandana, it had transferred onto the bandana. And that's how it, her blood had gotten onto the bandana. But it was a whole 24 hours after her murder. So there was no blood that was going to be still liquid enough to transfer. No. And it would be minute if there was which is very different than a little smear from your thumbprint. Mm -hmm. The defense team argued coincidence was also to blame for the rash of burglaries and the similarities of Deborah's murder, which the jury knew of, but didn't know that Mark had been already indicted for. After about three hours of deliberation, Mark was found guilty of murdering Christine. At the request of Christine's family, the sentence of death was taken off the table, and instead, Mark received an automatic life sentence. Oh, I'm so surprised. I'm actually not surprised because they had just seen somebody else wrongfully convicted for it. So I think you would be a little gun shy, wouldn't you? Oh, I could see that then, I guess. Because yeah. they believed that Michael had killed their daughter. That's right. Hmm. 
Throughout Christine's trial, Michael, along with his family and Christine's family, became close with Deborah's family, and they were all supportive of each other. Michael also showed support towards Mark's family. After the verdict was read, Mark's brother Dale broke down and apologized to Michael. Michael embraced both him and Mark's mother. Michael said he could relate to their shock and despair. Wow. For as much of a jerk that we called Michael in the beginning, he really has stepped it up in this part of it. He went through a life-altering experience. He really did. You can tell he did not come out the same person. No. How could you? You couldn't. I think that would have taken a lot, too, for Mark's brother, Dale, to apologize to Michael. Because what a horrific realization to come to that, okay, my brother, it's not only bad enough that he murdered these two women, but then to know that this other man was held behind bars for over two decades because of my brother's actions. Well, I think Dale's apology actually had more to do with he just felt bad that that had happened to Michael. I don't think it was an admission that Mark's whole family now believed the guilty verdict because his mother and his sister Connie do still claim that Mark is innocent. They felt that now Mark was just facing the same trial that Michael had faced with a wrongful conviction and it was just history repeating itself. No way. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to use this horrific experience that has happened to Michael to say, oh, this is what's happening to our son now. Exactly. Ew. And Mark does the same thing. He didn't feel any remorse. Before his second murder trial started, the dirtbag, who had ruined already so many lives, wrote a letter to the Chronicle. It was titled, This is a Statement of Hard Facts. And it read, They say I'm a murderer, a serial killer, a monster, but I'm not what they portray me to be. My family and I are among many others who have been victimized by a morally debased criminal justice system here in Texas. It is often said that justice is blind but it is also deaf, dumb, and crippled to the point of being incapacitated from the neck up. Most people do not see a massive breakdown in the justice system, but it's definitely in trouble in a serious way. Michael Morton wrote a book and professed truth, innocence, and justice in it without knowing all of the hard facts. In the absence of hard facts, it leads to speculations and assumptions, which leads to false perceptions and interpretations. You are not supposed to draw any conclusions until you have all the hard facts. Little does anyone know, I was railroaded in Williamson County, just like Michael Morton was back in 1986. This dirtbag has the audacity to claim that he too was wrongfully convicted. He is appealing to the argument that the system was messed up enough once that it could do it a second time. He goes on to write, Some people think there are no such thing as coincidences, just different perspectives. From one perspective, a series of individual events could appear totally random. From another perspective, the events could emerge as part of an overall pattern. And yet, when viewed from a more cynical perspective, it could be perceived to be just downright suspicious. So, no matter how suspicious the evidence, no matter how suspicious the circumstances, there is an absence of hard facts. It should not be a substitution for evidence. Suspicion is not conclusive, and suspicions are a long way from real proof. Thinking that somebody did the crime and knowing that somebody did the crime is two different things. When law enforcement authorities has to fabricate a case to convict somebody, that's crooked justice in my book. How about your book? Justice can be arrived at only by truth, not lies and deceit that ignores truth in a court of law. 
the prosecution is having to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am guilty, and I am having to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that I am innocent. In reality, beyond a shadow of a doubt does not exist in a court of law anymore. There are no values attached to the prosecution, and they have little or no incentives to suffer a standard of certainty. If the hard facts are absent, the prosecution has to go by assuming, guessing, and speculating to produce hypothetical theories to make their case. So the bottom line is, the prosecution will have its way whether you are guilty or not, and people will let themselves be convinced of anything, and that's a hard fact. Ask Michael Morton. Oh my goodness. All I have to say is, honey, the hard facts are that your DNA evidence was mixed on the bandana with her blood DNA evidence. That's a hard fact. Your pubic hair was found at the other crime scene. That's a hard fact. It's so true. It just irks me so much that instead of having remorse over sending somebody innocent to jail, he blames the system and uses that innocent man to further his own case. Yeah, he's literally going to step on his back to try and get himself further. Mm -hmm. But it does just show what an injustice was done. How one thing can have a ripple effect. It really does. This whole case is maddening. I'm mad at everyone. <laughs> it's just so sad that a lot of this tragedy could have been prevented. Yeah, Christine's murder should have been actually treated like a crime scene. And maybe right from the start, Mark could have been arrested. And like you said, Deborah would never have even died. Deborah's murder trial began in September of 2016 and lasted 10 days. Again, the judge allowed evidence from Mark's other murder trial to be entered into evidence because of the similarities. The defense tried to point out other scenarios of how Mark's pubic hair had gotten into Deborah's house, but again, the prosecution was able to convince the jury of his guilt, and it only took 90 minutes this time. With lunch? Because that's how long it took for Michael's trial. No. Interestingly, both of these juries deliberated longer than they did on Michael's trial. Wow. Mark, to this day, continues to maintain his innocence. And his remaining immediate family continued to proclaim it too, unable to believe that Mark could ever commit something so violent despite his past. In 2014, Mark's appeals for his convictions were overruled. He is currently incarcerated at the James V. Allred Prison in Iowa Park, Texas. He will become eligible for parole on November 9th, 2031. That's not that far away. It isn't. That's a scary thought. Mm-hmm. And that is the case of a disgusting dirtbag that robbed the lives of two beautiful women and refused to take ownership, allowing an innocent man to take the fall for him, the loathsome, lifelong criminal, Mark Norwood. Wow. I just have so much going on in my brain right now about that case. That was wild. But now you understand why I find it so hard if there's no confession. Even with Mark, I'm still like, oh, I still have more questions. There aren't enough answers for me yet. Yeah, because there wasn't all these super hard facts, but there were still some. Oh, yeah. The DNA definitely helped. But mm -hmm. I think I would be the worst person on a jury, honestly. Yeah, you would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Select me for your jury if you need one. <laughs> Don't select me. But I think the thing with Michael's case is there wasn't those hard facts. It was just assumptions. Yeah. There was not one thing that they could prove. Even the masturbation, they didn't even prove that. No, they just made up a whole bunch of stuff and went with it. Right. And then that was actually disproven later. Mm -hmm. So before we sign off, I just want to wrap up a couple of other things with the dirtbags and the good guys in this case, because there are so many things still happening. 
After the trials in 2013, in an unprecedented action, Ken Anderson, the prosecutor in Michael's original trial, was held accountable for his contribution to the wrongful conviction. Good. You even kept out evidence. Mm Mm-hmm. A large contributing factor to why Michael had been wrongfully convicted was the blue bandana's significance and how it was overlooked. But that was just one of many supposedly overlooked pieces of evidence. After his exoneration, it was learned that Sheriff Boutwell and Detective Wood had uncovered or received several pieces of evidence that would have pointed to Michael's innocence and Mark's guilt. Several neighbors at the time of the investigation told police that they had repeatedly seen a van canvassing the area around the back of the Morton's house and had seen someone that matched Mark's description walking off into the nearby woods behind the house. Police records also indicated that Christine Morton's visa card that was in her missing purse may have been recovered in a San Antonio jewelry store on August 15th. Just a couple of days after the murder, another woman had attempted to use the card. A San Antonio officer did alert the sheriff and said that he could point her out, but the sheriff declined. What? In a note found 25 years later in the sheriff's file, a deputy mocked the notion that Christine's purse really had been stolen, writing, of course we know better. (gasps) Oh my gosh. There was also a check that had been in Christine's purse that was cashed with a forged signature on it after her death. The check had been cancelled, and Detective Wood received a report of the incident on September 27, 1986, long before Michael was arrested. And this is really a kicker. Nine days after Christine's death, her mom, Rita Kirkpatrick, told police that Eric had talked to her about a monster that had hurt his mummy and broke the bed. Horrifically, it appears that Eric had been present during the murder. Oh my gosh. According to Eric, the murderer was not Michael, but a monster. Eric described the crime scene and murder in great detail. He said the monster wore red gloves and hit his mom with wood. And there would be wood splinters that were found in Christine's wounds. Specifically, he said that daddy was not home when it happened. Sheriff Boutwell told Rita that Eric was unreliable because of his age and made her feel foolish for believing his recount, even though Eric had shared several things about the crime scene that had not been released to the public. Police chose not to follow up on this tip. No way. I'm sorry, but a three-year-old knows the difference between a stranger and his daddy. Mm -hmm. Eric had also mentioned the monster to Michael too one night after the murder, when he was cleaning up the bathtub. Eric had asked him if he knew the man in the shower with his clothes on. Michael at the time was horrified with the realization that Eric had seen something and arranged for him to go to therapy. He says he didn't tell the police about the comment, though, because he didn't want his son to be more traumatized by their questioning, especially after the way that their questions had traumatized him. At the time, he still didn't fully grasp that they were gunning for him. Later, he said the comment was inadmissible because it was hearsay and it just looked like he was making up a story and using his son. Oh my goodness. None of these leads were looked into, and of course none of this information was shared with the defense team, let alone presented to the 12 jurors that would determine Michael's guilt. The inquiry determined that it was Anderson that had confirmed with Sergeant Wood that he had turned over everything to the judge. He only had turned over what he believed would be admissible in court. What? You don't get to make that decision! Ken Anderson was forced to resign as a judge and was legally charged with prosecutorial misconduct. 
He wasn't remorseful about not turning over evidence and called the inquiry, quote, so bogus, it's unreal. Oh, then he's been doing this his whole career, if he feels justified in it. Yeah. His only attempt at an apology was to admit that, quote, the system screwed up. No, you are the system, honey. You screwed up. Yeah. He didn't take personal responsibility at all. He should have to spend 24 years in jail. Do the same thing that Michael did. Mm -hmm. Instead, he portrayed himself as a victim of a media frenzy and said that he could not think of anything that he could have done more a quarter of a century ago that would have caused a different outcome. (laughs) And I think, yeah, you could. You could have chosen not to be a dirtbag and turned over all the evidence. Yeah. Get off your lazy butt and actually look into all of these leads. Right. He was just so wrapped up in protecting his own reputation that he talked the coroner into changing the time of death. Right. He was literally changing the evidence to fit his theory. Mm -hmm. So he wouldn't look bad and he wouldn't lose the case. Oh, my gosh. So you take your ego above the whole life of a man and his son. And even beyond that, the whole trust in the legal justice system. Right. And the life of Deborah. Mm -hmm. Did he only have to step down? No, he got a whole 10 days in prison. Oh, get out. I'm going to flip this table, (laughs) Melissa. 10 days. (laughs) It gets worse. So he was sentenced to 10 days in prison, 500 hours of community service, and fined $500. But he only ended up serving four of those days in jail. Four days. 96 hours. And probably protected because he's a judge and he's being put in jail. He probably sat and hung out with the security. It's just so crazy considering what Michael's sentence was and the way that Ken Anderson had other friends of his in the legal system fighting against Michael's release and stopping evidence from coming forward. Which tells me he knew it was wrong. If you have nothing to hide, like I said, you don't hide anything. Yeah. Ken Anderson was disbarred for withholding evidence. But that's not enough, in my opinion. No. I can see if a mistake was made. But he knowingly did that. He did it on purpose. Mm -hmm. All three of them knew that there was evidence that supported Michael's innocence. Right. Sergeant Don Wood wasn't held accountable for his actions. In 2011, he made a statement to the media that said he still believed that Michael killed his wife despite the evidence. What? And since that time, he has kept a low profile. I couldn't find anything else that he had said to the media. Yeah, you got egg on your face. Mm Mm-hmm. Sheriff Beltwell was also never held accountable for his contributions in allowing Mark to get away with murder for 20 years. You're kidding me. He died in 1993. So he never lived long enough to see that he was wrong. No, he didn't. But the investigation into Christine's death wouldn't be the only scar on his career. Interestingly, just over a year before Christine's death, Sheriff Beltwell had come under criticism for the way that he had collected the hundreds of false confessions from the serial killer Henry Lee Lucas while heading up the Henry Lee Lucas task force. No way. Mm -hmm. He was that sheriff that collected all of those false confessions. Wow. So he was a dirty cop. I think he was high on his ego. And I think that after facing criticism for collecting all those false confessions, he was out to prove himself. Yeah, he was looking for a strong win. Mm -hmm. So anything that was going to deviate from that, he dismissed. That's right. Oh, which at that point in time, you are no longer serving your community in the justice system. He did not care who killed Christine. He cared that he had a slam dunk case. Mm -hmm. And even now, like for Anderson and Wood to not admit any fault. 
is such a slap in the face. Are they just trying to save face or do you think in the still of the night, do they have any remorse? Oh, I don't think so. Not by their statements that they made to the media anyway. They're just so delusional that they believe it. Mm -hmm. Those are dangerous type of people to have in our justice system. Absolutely. The inquest into Christine Morton's murder investigation attributed the shoddy police work and the prosecution cover-up to tunnel vision. Once the police and the prosecution had decided that Michael was guilty, they were blind to all other possibilities. And tragically, that tunnel vision had created an avenue where Mark could murder again. And the other thing with that, too, is then any other people that they have put behind bars can now use this as a means for their own appeals. Mm -hmm. It creates distrust in the legal system. And a crack in their police work. They frame somebody, so maybe they could have framed me, too. Which is exactly the defense that Mark is using to create doubt against his conviction. Yeah. After Anderson's refusal to admit guilt, Michael told reporters that, quote, I think we saw someone who is still struggling with denial and anger. This is a man who has been in a position of power for almost three decades and for the first time has had to answer for his actions. And he is very uncomfortable with that. I just thought that was so graceful and eloquent to acknowledge that this guy is just struggling with denial and anger. I would have wanted to rip his head off. Oh, yeah. While there was no way to give Michael back the years of his life that he lost, just like Mark's conviction didn't bring back Christine or Deborah, the inquest did bring about a sense of closure for what had been done to him. As compensation for his wrongful conviction, Michael received a lump sum payment of just under $2 million, which amounted to be $80,000 per year that he was incarcerated. And now he receives a $12,000 monthly annuity for his wrongful conviction. Well, yeah, he lost 24 years of his life to further a career or invest money or to have anything save for retirement. And the relationship with your child, it's a lot of money, but it's not enough, really. He'll never be able to recover what he lost. And he didn't even get to mourn the death of his wife. No. Michael has went on to remarry and published a memoir called Getting Life. He is slowly rebuilding a life with Eric, but it's a difficult process. Eric was 32 and expecting his first child when his father was released from prison, the same age that Michael was when he was accused of the crime. I can only imagine how hard it would be to change something that you have been taught and believed your whole life. For his whole life, Eric believed that his father had killed his mother. It would take some time to wrap your head around the actual truth. Oh, I can't imagine. Today, Michael does have contact with Eric and his three grandchildren. Michael, using his education in psychology that he received while incarcerated, has remained an advocate for those that face a similar situation to him. He was instrumental in bringing about a law that ensures a more open discovery process on May 16, 2013. In Texas, it is referred to as the Michael Morton Act. In a true testament to the kind of man he has become, he has rarely expressed vengefulness towards those that were responsible for his wrongful conviction. He still regards law enforcement as the good guys. The utter grace at which he conducts himself in light of so much wrong that was done towards him is inspiring. Wow, that is so remarkable. It really says a lot about his character. It does. It just always amazes me just how much choice we have when choosing the kind of person we're going to be. So true, because people can get so bitter for a lot less reasons than that. Mm -hmm. My heart actually really goes out to him and his family. He really decided to make some choices that most of society wouldn't. It's true. Choice has so much to do with our actions and who we become. And speaking of choices, 
We hope that you will choose to join us again next week when I have another case for you. Until then. See ya. Bye. glasses on melissa said get a little closer don't be shy because <laughs> wasn't that like a folgers in your cup or something is that part I of that commercial know. coffee breath though doesn't scream get a little closer ew <laughs> get far away <laughs> boop <laughs> like pop them back it's so funny that show brings me joy <laughs> she used to watch murder shows now she watches magic shows <laughs> I'm curious if you're going to be ready to convict the right killer. Oh, you're not going to tell me who it is? <laughs> oh, man. What if I pick the wrong person? <laughs> no. <laughs> you're going to know because I already told you not the husband. Oh. <laughs> if it was my birthday, I might too. <laughs> but how many times have we talked about a case like this? And we're like, oh, why can't they see it? It's right there. Like all of that evidence just lines up. Right. You can see how he's looking that way. Sorry, should I not say that out yeah. loud? But yeah. it's true. Is it like a murder van? Yeah, it's the Chevy creepy white kidnapper van. You've got an idea there. I didn't think about that one. They were able to track down the missing 45 that had went missing. The missing 45 that went missing. <laughs> Wait till you hear what then he I'll be says. Like, well, maybe he's innocent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you can't put that in there. In reality, beyond a shadow of a... T- Sorry, I can see that little... Uh, it's like, like a bird like, fly or something. I like- know, and it's like... <laughs> I'm afraid I'm it's going fly into he's my like, mouth. He's like, goes here. And then he like comes over here. Like he's making his rounds around you. Sorry. I have a sentence that just says the date. How awesome is that? <laughs> Awful at proofreading. What? I'm laughing at my own writing because I have the rest of the sentence right below it. Sure, that little bug's over at me now because I laughed at you. That's right. <laughs> Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.